This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Under Color of Law, and the author is A. Dwight Pettit, and Dwight joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dwight. Hi, Steve. How are you doing today? Happy holidays to you. Well, thank you, and happy holidays to you, and this story is your personal story from the 40s to the present time, dealing with the civil rights movement, constitutional uh, issues. Of course, you're a civil rights and constitutional and criminal lawyer, uh, but we're really going to celebrate the life of your father and all that you learned and then some of your accomplishments as well, correct? That's correct. So how long have you been a criminal lawyer? Well, Steve, I've been practicing law in Baltimore, Maryland for 40 years exactly. I did uh, three years prior to that with the Small Business Administration uh, in Washington, D.C., right after law school. Uh, But when I came back home to Baltimore, I opened my private practice in the area of criminal law, constitutional law, civil rights, and personal injury. So I've been a lawyer totally for 43 years, but 40 years in private practice. Well, take us back, Dwight. Take us back to a time when you were a young boy and your father was a local civil rights leader. What do you remember? Well, we, my father was the first black engineer employed here by the United States Army, Army at uh, Fort Holabird. And uh, his, his section division... Uh, closed down, and he was transferred to a place called Aberdeen, Maryland Ground, one of the largest military scientific bases uh, in the country. And uh, he was one of the few black engineers, or maybe the only black engineer there. And unknowing to him, the schools were still segregated. They were desegregating very slowly because Brown versus the Board of Education had already been passed. But they were not admitting uh, students at, at large, it was you had to go through an application test, and at that point in time, they had it should, it had uh, had not admitted any black males to the Aberdeen High School. Uh, so as a result, my father uh, came and retained or uh, secured the NAACP, some great lawyers, Juanita Jackson Mitchell, uh, Thurgood Marshall, Jack Greenberg, and Tucker Daring, and took it into the United States Federal District Court. Uh, we were successful in that case, and I was ordered into Aberdeen High School in the 10th grade uh, at approximately 14, 15 years old. I didn't have any problems, Steve, because I was an athlete, and people just, if you can throw the ball, catch the ball, run the ball, people sort of gravitate to you and, and uh, accept you. Uh-huh. So even in an all-white situation, I didn't have any major problems or impediments. I had one little fight, and after I dusted that person off, I was sort of accepted by all the students in the school. But my father caught pure D hell 
Uh, they put rebel flags up in his office. They played Dixie when he walked through the door. Uh, they wouldn't give him a phone and uh, secretary and all of those type of things to demean him. And for 14 years, he was never promoted. Uh, he was told that he wouldn't be promoted because of what he'd done in the school system. And plus, he was vice president of the NAACP and active in the integration of restaurants and things like that. And so I had the opportunity to grow up, uh, finish Aberdeen High School, go to Howard University undergrad, Howard University Law School, take the Maryland bar and come back and take my father's case. Uh, because at this time, no case had gone up uh, to the high courts in relationship to back pay, and especially for federal employees in uh, the United States government, even though Title VII had been passed it had not incorporated federal employees. And so we went before the United States Court of Claims with a, the help of a man by the name of Paul Tagliabue, who would later become uh, NFL Commissioner of Football. But he assisted me because he had a case that was a prior case in the Court of Claims. But the U.S. Court of Claims took my case and heard it first in bank, which means all seven judges. And they found in favor of my father and awarded him $100,000 back pay, which was a lot of money at that time. And four years, I mean, four promotions and all privileges and immunities that went with uh, GS-14 is what he's promoted to from the GS-11. And what that case did, it established two things, that there could be a relief in, in terms of back pay and retroactive pay for federal employees, uh, even though Title VII had not been passed. And also it established the what is called the but-for test, which was the evidentiary test around the country uh, in terms of if you prove that you were qualified, then the burden of proof shifted to the defense to show why you had not been promoted but for racial discrimination. So the, the case became a landmark around this nation, and I would go into courtrooms and federal courtrooms and federal administrative hearings, and the judge would always ask me, Mr. Pettit, uh, do you have anything to do with Pettit versus the United States and that it governs the rules of evidence for our proceedings? And I'll always say with great pride that uh, George D. Pettit is my father and I was my father's lawyer. And when the case went up to the United States Supreme Court through another case called Teston versus the United States, the court firmly said that if it had received Pettit, it would have reversed Pettit because only Congress can make those laws, uh, not presidential executive orders. And But at that time, by the time the Supreme Court addressed the matter, we had settled, my father had been promoted, and, every, and he had been totally vindicated for all of those years of sacrifice and torment as a result of him putting me and securing a, a proper education for me, uh, his son, starting in the 10th grade. So that's that's the story in a nutshell in relationship to one of the main themes of um, uh, uh, under color of law is the, the three cases that I refer to as the legal trilogy in my life. Pettit versus the uh, Board of Education of Harford County, Pettit versus the United States, my father, which I was counsel, and Pettit versus the Board of Law Examiner that I had to file suit against the state of Maryland when I came here to practice law. Well, that's quite a story and quite an accomplishment, and I can't even imagine the thrill to represent your father and uh, win in court for, obviously, uh, his just due. Well, I'll tell you, Steve, you, you can't even imagine the way I felt when I walked into that court well in front of seven federal judges 
and my mother and father was sitting behind me, and my wife and my secretary. Uh, the feeling is indescribable as I go into it in the book. Uh, to be able to be blessed, I'm very religious, uh, to be able to be blessed uh, by God, to have that opportunity uh, to vindicate and fight for people who had given their whole life uh, fighting for me. Tell us about the challenges when you were much younger as a child, when you were personally attacked by the media. What, what was, that must have been an ordeal. Well, Steve, you hit it right on the head. I, because what my father did, when they denied me admission to the Aberdeen High School, he sent me 30 miles away back to Baltimore and boarded me out with a very nice family in Baltimore so I wouldn't get academically behind. And so that was like my third school in uh, in a three-year period of time before I was admitted to Aberdeen High School. And so I go into this new school. The school in Baltimore City was called Lamel. I had been going to the black school in the county before we went to Aberdeen, which was Solace Point. So I had gone to all of these different schools, and he was determined to keep me up to par academically. So if we did win the suit, I would be able to academically compete. And it was just such a, a thing to walk into that classroom and be on the front page of the Baltimore Sun, which was our basically our state newspaper at the time, where they were talking about my shortcomings and uh, the allegations from the other side that I was mentally retarded, uh, that my IQ tests were not up to par with white students, and that the county was basically trying to protect me from having to compete with white students with a uh, much more superior intellect and my intellect being uh, basically inferior. And so with the press bombarding me uh, with that and so forth, it was quite an experience to uh, be in school 30 miles away from home at 14 years old, uh, living with an alien family that I later became to know and love, uh, and to be going home every weekend. But my father was so uh, determined that I was going to have every chance in life. Uh, he hired all types of tutors for me. I had uh, tutors in math and tutors in English and tutors in Spanish. So when I came home for the weekend, I had to meet with my tutors uh, all uh, mm. all Saturdays and Sundays. So I didn't, as a 14-year-old, I didn't have much of, I had no social life whatsoever. Everything was dedicated to the litigation. As I said, Thurgood Marshall was here, and Renita Jackson Mitchell, and we were preparing for trial. They were having me take an additional test uh, to rebut the foolishness that the state had come up with. They pulled what they called achievement tests and IQ tests uh, when I was in the third and fourth grade, and who knows what I was focusing on or what I was thinking about, or for that matter, I was such a, a rebellious kid that I didn't even know what I would have been thinking about, much less an achievement test when I was in the third and fourth grade. But that was the evidence that they were allegedly using against mm -hmm. me, and that's what was hitting the national media, and particularly the, the media here in Maryland, uh, the Baltimore Sun. So that's, was, it was quite an impact and, and mental challenge of me to, to deal with that on a day, daily basis because the kids knew it, the teachers knew it, and, and uh, I was determined to prove them wrong. And the court says, as I say in my book, that it was so astonishing because the court actually says when they were delivering on, deliberating on the case that I had been elected class president, was elected to the student council, 
and was elected chief judge of the school court all in one year in the ninth grade. So the judge, Roselle Thompson, at the time, chief judge of the Maryland U.S. District Court, said a kid can't be with the soul, uh, he can't be that dumb and do all the things that he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and your book also focuses on your part in the Jimmy Carter administration. Yes, that was a fascinating experience. In fact, let me just tell you, uh, if I may, Steve, I got a fantastic letter from Jimmy Carter a couple of weeks ago because I sent him and Rosalind a copy of the book. And it was just so awesome. At that time, I was determined to get into politics. I had returned back to Baltimore. And I had the opportunity to meet uh, President, well, he was Governor Carter then, very early on the campaign trail. And uh, I became very much involved in his campaign because I was one of the first African-Americans uh, coming into the campaign outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and especially being a, an African-American civil rights attorney. And so uh, I became had the good fortune of becoming very, very close to he, uh, his son, Chip Carter, and his wife, uh, Rosalind Carter, and becoming very much involved in the Carter campaign. We got so close, I'll tell you a little story I tell in the book, that uh, when he was nominated, when he was elected president of the United States, on inauguration night, my family, my father and my mother, my wife and I were there, and the, the Secret Service came and got us and said, Mr. Pettit, uh, the President of the United States wants you and Mrs. Pettit to join him for the first dance in the nation. And so we walked into a roped-off circle uh, with President Carter and Mrs. Carter and danced along with um, a man by the name of James Rouse, who was the builder of several cities in this nation and harbors and so forth, and the Senator Robb out of, out of Virginia. We all danced the first dance uh, with the president. And I captured all this in pictures because uh, I was always paying photographers to, in fact, take the pictures while these things were happening. But one of the things that brought Jimmy Carter, or let me say President Carter, uh, very close, and, my, and what brought us very close was when, I don't know whether you remember, but they had the ethnic purity crisis where he was alleged to have made the statement about ethnic purities of neighborhoods. What he was really talking about was that he saw no problem in maintaining ethnic heritage in neighborhoods, Italian neighborhoods, Chinese neighborhoods, et cetera, et cetera. But the press blew it up that it was a, a racist remark by a Georgia governor, and this almost derailed his presidency or his campaign. And what I did, sent him a telegram. He was in Chicago at the time, and he got the telegram, and I basically gave him advice as to how we could battle that situation and put it to rest. And he was so impressed by what I had advised him and what I told him uh, that I got a call from the campaign that President, or that then Governor Carter, wanted to meet me for breakfast at the Hilton Hotel in, in Washington, D.C. the next day. And so I was just knocked off of my feet that I was actually going to have President I mean, breakfast with a man who might be the next president of the United States. And so from there on, I was probably as close as anybody uh, could be uh, to a president, right on through inauguration and transition and right on into the White House. I was at the first state dinner, my wife and I. I was at the, the peace treaty signing between Begin and Sadat. Uh, everything that happened in the White House uh, for the next four years, I was right there and involved, even though I was nominated for U.S. Attorney of Maryland, which would have made me the first black U.S. attorney uh, for a state in the nation. But that was blocked then uh, by junior Senator Paul Sarbanes. So that nomination or appointment never took place, but it still had nothing to do with the relationship that I enjoyed with the Carters 
uh, during their four years in the White House. And what he did was appoint me to the Democratic National Compliance Commission of the Democratic Party. And I was assigned there as the trial lawyer to fight to make sure that at that time, uh, Ted Kennedy did not uh, usurp the nomination for the 1980 race by facts uh, taking any delegates that were not uh, supposed to go to him. So I was put in a very, very important, what I consider an important role of advocacy uh, in the DNC uh, during Carter's White House uh, tenure. The book is titled Under Color of Law. We're talking about perseverance, determination, survival, literally when the going gets tough, the tough get going, one of your key messages uh, Dwight, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can get it through, I understand now, it's on the shelves at uh, Barnes & Noble, but I know you can order it through Barnes & Noble. If you don't have a Barnes & Noble there, if it's not on the shelves of your local Barnes & Noble, and you also can get it through Amazon.com, and you can also get it from the publishers, uh, which is www.iuniverse.com. They have a bookstore online. Thank you so much, Dwight, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much, Steve, and uh, you have a great holiday. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana, through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Leadership for Adolescents, and the author is Carolyn M. Anderson, and Carolyn joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Carolyn. Hello, and good morning to you. Great to have you with us, Carolyn. Let me read just a 
a short introduction to your book so everyone understands the breadth of leadership for adolescents, offers seven steps to communication competencies and skills that will prepare them to be a more effective leader and or follower. Each chapter's exercises reinforce learning from self-reflection, original case studies, interpersonal and small group discussions, and individual skill practices. Very comprehensive book, and yet not a long book. That's another thing I want to emphasize. It isn't some textbook, is it? <laughs> no, it isn't. And, and I did that for a so, reason, because uh, I think that, uh, you know, sometimes we get caught up in too much wording and so forth, and we, we tend to lose the focus of what we're really trying to do. So I tried to write it as concisely as possible. Well, we're going to talk about these seven steps uh, briefly in the time we have about increasing people's skills and making them more competent, especially, of course, as you focus on uh, teenagers. But let's learn about you, Carolyn, your background and why you wrote the book. Okay. Uh, well, I have worked in business and industry for over 20 years, and some of that time was spent in leadership roles. And then I made a career change, and I went back to school and decided that I didn't want to work in business and industry any longer other than as a consultant. Uh, so I uh, went on, and I decided I wanted to teach. And so I uh, completed all the necessary rigor <laughs> to get my Ph.D., uh, and uh, after that, I was very fortunate to be able to begin teaching uh, and also to have a tenure-track position. And so in that position, I was able to uh, teach a leadership uh, and bring that to the University of Akron uh, and small group. I'm also a small group expert. And uh, so I've been teaching and researching and studying uh, leadership and those various topics uh, from a communication perspective. And so I came to write this particular book. Uh, I have used a very good book in my teaching, and I taught it at the senior and graduate school level. Uh, and there's a very good textbook out there. And I thought, you know, I, I, I want to write something for an earlier age group. I had uh, read an article that said uh, we don't start early enough uh, in our educational exposure as, as young people. Uh, to learn some of these things. And, uh, you know, students in my graduate class and, and senior level class said, you know, I wish I'd had this class sooner uh, because it would have helped me through my academic career and given me a lot more confidence in being uh, in group work and being a leader and, and being taking those kinds of steps. So that was the appeal for me. Uh, and then I read an article by Whitehead, whom I, I quote in the book, uh, that said, we need to do this. And so I thought, this is the perfect opportunity for me to write a book about leadership uh, and uh, target it for that younger audience. Uh, and, you know, quite frankly, even, you know, people in college can read it. Uh, and parents have even said to me, I'm anxious to read it myself uh, so that I can help my uh, children and my adolescents, you know, in their development. So that was my inspiration and I'm very uh, pleased to have completed that now. I am uh, emeritus uh, for, uh, status. I did retire last year from the university after 21 years of teaching, 
Uh, and so now I'm devoting myself to writing uh, and uh, researching and also my uh, consulting company. So this is a uh, step and a goal of mine, and now that it's complete, I'm, I'm a happy camper. <laughs> well, it sounds like you really will be a great strength and a great asset to uh, this whole audience that you're focused on, uh, this young audience. And it makes sense that, that college students would say, I wish I'd have had this earlier. So with all the messages, you get several messages uh, in your book. If you had to pick one, what would you say is, you know, one of the uh, things you'd like the reader, the uh, student to take away from your book? Well, you're kind of forcing me to pick just one. So I guess, you know, if I have to do that, I would say young people have the potential to be a competent and successful leader and or follower at any stage in their life. And it doesn't matter which, you know, cultural background you come from, whether you're rich or poor, and, and privileged or not privileged. Uh, and, you know, one reason is that communication is a learned behavior. So this book's contents will help these readers on the road to enhancing their communication skills. And uh, that, of course, is a characteristic that all good leaders uh, talk about and suggest that you have to have and also to be a good follower. You know, when you're not leading, you're following. Uh, so we have to move through those particular two roles throughout our, our paths in life, and uh, this book will help you do that. Well, when we think of leadership, and as I look at your seven steps, your seven chapters here in your book, Leadership for Adolescents, you know, you see words that uh, ring true. We've heard them before, like motivation and likability and charisma and and uh, humor. Wow, that's that's one that probably is one of the most important ones. It seems to really lighten up when you're trying to address serious issues. Oh, absolutely. You know, leadership can be a difficult role. And, uh, you know, oftentimes people say, well, the buck stops with the leader. Of course, that isn't true. You know, each member of the, of the team is also responsible. But we need to have a sense of humor and, and not jokester telling, you know, like a life of the party. But you have to have right. a lighter side and you have to have the ability to step back, analyze what may have gone wrong or what is going right, and just be pleased about it. Uh, and I find that having, and I, I give tips for how to go about to develop a sense of humor uh, and so that you can face some of these issues uh, with an open mind. Uh, sometimes we, we tend to dwell on certain issues uh, that, that may not or, you know, seem to be important to me as a leader, uh, which may not be as important to the followers. So we need to be able to step back, and I even uh, advise in the book, and, and I do this in my training also, is to have people create a humor box. And so when things get really tough, <laughs> you just pull in the drawer and you pull out your humor box and uh, so forth. In fact, one, um, one of my students talked to that uh, with his boss, and so his boss asked me to help him create a humor room for their organization. And so we did that. 
and you know, I selected various books and and various tapes of, and movies that they could watch and and uh, so forth. So I think humor is is one that is often overlooked and uh, something that we need to sort of develop throughout our life. Hmm. Very well put and great insight, and that makes so much sense. And it could be applied, obviously, to all areas of life, not just in the business world. Let's talk about this whole concept of being a great leader. You have to be a great listener. Oh, absolutely. You know, I found, and and I was uh, interim director of the School of Communication for three years while they were searching for someone. I chose not to take, you know, a permanent position in that respect, but I did lead the department, and, you know, I had over 800 students and six faculty, and I had 18 full-time faculty and six six, uh, contract professionals and staff, and, you know, I mean, my day was spent in listening, and most leaders will tell you that, uh, that they do spend a good portion of that time being good listeners because you cannot uh, help uh, you cannot make good decisions unless you've heard the facts and you know how people are feeling, where they're coming from, and uh, what are the best steps uh, to solutions to the problem. And I say yes on solutions because, you know, most people think it's either yes or no. We're either going to do this or we're not going to do this. And oftentimes uh, there's a medium point. So I think to find solutions to a problem or problems or issues, then you need to be able to listen clearly and and um, be able to give good feedback. I remember hearing someone say to another person uh, in questioning whether they were happy or not, and the person said, well, of course I'm happy. And the other person <laughs> said, well, tell your face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that's the that whole nonverbal, that whole nonverbal, yeah, that's so important. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I talk, one of the things I really am proud about in this book, aside from, you know, Chapter 7, which is about slogans to live by and the research, you know, that I, I have in that area, is the fact that I talk about the need for integrity. And I, I think that that is extremely important for young people to realize that uh, they need to develop a sense of, of understanding about what is right and what is correct and what everyone thinks we should do. Uh, and, uh, you know, have, have it's just not I tell you what to do, it's we work it out uh, together. And, but having that sense of value and having that sense of, of what is good for the group, what is good for the organization, what is good for school, what's good for whatever group that we're, we're working with. And so you have to look at the consequences of your decisions. And sometimes we don't think about that. Uh, so I, I'm really excited about that chapter also because I think that young people need to understand that we're evaluated uh, and we need to follow people who have a good balance in life, a good uh, you know, way of looking at the rights and the wrongness for the actions that we do. So that is uh, something that I'm, I'm happy to share with uh, the students who and the young people who read this book. You also have a chapter on decision-making in small groups, conflict and group outcomes, another chapter, and the final chapter, Keep Learning. But I notice in all your 
At the end of each chapter, you have listed summary discussion exercises and then references. Tell us why you did it that way. Well, I believe in order to reinforce learning, we need to engage in some kind of reflection or exercise to draw home the, the, the uh, points that were made in the book. I, and so, you know, in the first chapter, The I and Leader, I talk about self-reflection. And, uh, you know, I'm having students do a little journaling and, and writing about where their strengths and weaknesses are. And, you know, it's not, it's horrible that I have a weakness in, you know, public speaking where I'm afraid, you know, to speak up in a group. Uh, it's the idea of recognizing that and then beginning to work on those particular ideas. And, of course, leaders need followers. So a lot of work that leaders do, aside from one-on-one, you know, issues, uh, is to work with groups. And so you need to understand how that works and how you can, um, you know, be a good group member uh, and how you can lead your groups to making good decisions. And so I wrote three case studies originally uh, for this book uh, so that the students could practice what they would do in those situations. You know, it's a learning process. And so uh, I'm excited for them to be able to go through some of these exercises to reinforce the learning. Because sometimes we read and then we tend not to, you know, we want to answer questions in school. We get a right and wrong and we get 100 or we get 80. Uh, but we don't get an opportunity to practice. And so, you know, as a trainer also, I think it's, it's critical to be able to practice with your peers uh, how you would go about handling these particular uh, scenarios that I've selected for you. And references, you know, you need to read also. Uh, and I provided some websites uh, for the students to go to. Uh, you know, learning is an everyday effort. Uh, and uh, I've just finished teaching one class at the university. I taught an intercultural class, which was a new experience for me. So it was, it was good to learn, uh, you know, some new things. So, so I think it's, it's so very critical to understand that as we move through life, you know, you, you might have more than one career, which I did, uh, and you need to be able to, uh, you know, prepare yourself for those particular steps in life. Uh, and so this book is a good way to try to understand some of the basics uh, that will be very good for you, and, and I'm hoping that people will keep this book on their shelf because I've gone back to books <laughs> that, that I've used uh, and had learned from, and, and that knowledge is still good and still there. We've been listening to Carolyn M. Anderson. She is the author of her book, Leadership for Adolescents. Carolyn, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can get my book, uh, of course, through iUniverse, uh, and that's the address uh, in the book there. Uh, it's also on Amazon, and it will be on my website, Facebook, uh, and the other social media uh, as soon as I uh, get, you know, that a lot of that up and running, clearly. Uh, so it is hot off the press. Uh, so uh, clearly, uh, you know, it is out there, and there are ways to purchase the book. Uh, and also, if not, you can write to me directly, and I'll send you one. Uh, so uh, it's, I'm excited about it, and uh, certainly with social media today, uh, it's not going to be a problem uh, and to secure one of the books. Thank you so much, Carolyn, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Good. Thank you, and have a nice day. 
You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, I Made My Choice, Have You? And the author is Blair Stevens, and Blair joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Blair. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us. Uh, You're going to stir the pot a little bit. You might get some... uh, who knows what kinds of emotions you may <laughs> create in a few folks, but uh, you're just shooting from the hip, aren't you? You're just doing what you yeah, feel pretty much. is... No, no research. It's all just uh, pure emotion. We all know that the 24-hour news cycle uh, filled with issues facing America every day. It seems they get more and more complicated, and so... You just see parallels between many of these these issues and your own life experiences. So thus the title, I made my choice. Have you, where do you stand, reader? You know, where do you stand on these issues, right? That's correct, yeah. Well, Blair, tell us a little bit about your background and why you decided to do this. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. I'm, I'm not a writer by trade or even by hobby. I'm, a, I'm an auto mechanic, and I own a small machine shop and, uh, and repair facility of antique automobiles. And uh, several years ago, I was visiting with a friend, and, and uh, the subject came up about writing, and he told me that he had written a book as a gift to his grandchildren about himself. And I thought, boy, that'd be a great thing to do. So I, I decided to write a book about me, and uh, the subject matter was far too boring for even for my grandchildren. So <laughs> I kind of shelved it until I came up with the bright idea of just telling them how I feel about issues in my lifetime and, and how I've dealt with them as kind of a you know lasting legacy, strictly as a gift for them. And and my, I, when I wrote the book, I had a target audience of seven people because I have seven grandchildren. And uh, the target audience has, uh, I've had 100% uh, exposure to my target audience. And uh, that was going to be the end of it. And then uh, the, the gentleman that kind of encouraged me to write, he was an older gentleman, World War II veteran, and I gave him a copy of the book, and, and he read the book, and he rushed right over to my work facility here and told me that I had to, I had to try to market the book. Um, and uh, he just he, he said he enjoyed it, and he thought I should, while he didn't always agree with what I said, he thought I should try to market the book. 
and uh, the next day he passed away. And so I'm, I'm thinking, well, I'm kind of a guy about, you know, messages and stuff, and maybe this is some kind of a message. So I thought, well, let's proceed and uh, work at marketing. So here we are. Here we are, and because of some interesting, uh, insightful experiences of working in Mexico City as part of uh, your job, uh, you've got some real strong observations and opinions about illegal immigration. Why don't you share a few of those which are in your book? Well, you know, the, the common common knowledge nowadays uh, seems to run in, in different directions regarding the, pro the problem of illegal immigration. Uh, you know, certain people say, well, they're already here. Let's just give them amnesty across the board. And, and, uh, and you know, I guess it's kind of at this point hope, the, hope for the best. Uh, another another uh, avenue of thought is, uh, well, let's build a big giant fence and uh, let's just keep the son of a guns out of our country. Well, I don't, I don't believe... I don't believe either one to be a, a solution. I, I don't think we can build a fence high enough or deep enough to keep uh, a hungry man from trying to, to better his life, come to this country, and uh, earn enough income to feed a family. Uh, you know, th this country was founded by hungry people that came here to find a way to feed a family. And, and building a fence isn't going to prevent that from continuing. As far as giving amnesty, I don't see that as a solution at all. Uh, but what I see, because I worked in Mexico City for those years, I, I realized that, that wages were, minimum wage in Mexico City was 50 cents an hour, and, and uh, uh, that's, a, that's a, a sum of money that even in, even in Mexico uh, a normal family can't live on. Uh, and I always felt that the American companies were going down there. They were exploiting that 50 cent an hour minimum and bringing products here to the United States and making a huge profit on them, but uh, doing no benefit to the people of Mexico. Uh, my, my thought on the whole thing is, is take your company down there. You know, if you're going to go offshore, whether it's Mexico, China, Bangladesh, it doesn't matter. Uh, uh, pay, pay a reasonable wage. Allow prosperity. If these people are prosperous, I don't believe they'll want to come here to the United States. I believe they'll want to stay there with the people that love them as long as they have some prosperity. And if they're prosperous, they do a day's work, they can come home and relax, uh, maybe buy some decent groceries, which creates a job for somebody else, maybe buy a television, which creates another job, uh, maybe take the kids out for ice cream, which is even more jobs. And, and it's a trickle-down, and the whole thing, the whole thing is, says prosperity and if there's prosperity in Mexico or whatever country uh, there's no need for them to want to sneak into ours uh, so that's kind of how I feel about it now when we talk about abortion such a hot button issue how do you view that and how did you you know come to your conclusions well there's there's another issue that I don't seem to agree with anybody on. Um, I think I think the pro-life or anti-abortion forces. I think they're completely wrong. Uh, I am, oddly enough, pro-choice. Uh, this is one of the choices I write about in my book. Uh, by choice, my choice 
is to allow the conception, conception of every child to come to a full fruition, and we have a live, living child on our hands. I, I think that's the only answer. And uh, anti-abortion, um, you can't just outlaw abortion. Abortions were happening before it was, when it was illegal, and if we make it illegal again, they will still be happening. Uh, we'll go back to the back alley coat hanger style of abortions. And, uh, you know, you know, we remember how, most of us at least remember how ugly that was. Uh, so my choice is, is birth always. And then, and then, you know, we have to probably change our the mindset of our society where, you know, we've become a pretty, you know, I'm not a prude or anything, but by God, we've become a pretty promiscuous society. It's like, well, we're grown-ups. We're consenting adults. We can do whatever we want. Well, not really, because when when you you start conceiving children, you're not only dealing with your life; you're dealing with another life. And and believe it or not, in spite of what many parents think, that life doesn't belong to you. That life is only put in your charge for a very short period. So we should we should probably I don't know maybe get back to the way things once were, you know, where maybe there was uh, uh, promiscuity wasn't quite so accepted. Uh, maybe there was uh, uh, responsibility taken in in, uh, in the course of a relationship between a man and a woman. And um, I don't know. Although I am pro-choice, very strongly pro-choice, my choice is the baby lives always. So just my, my way of thinking. Well, I agree with you totally. The baby always needs to live, and how we get there is, or, or what we do after is uh, other kinds of choices, but uh, you also, in your book, talk about illegal drugs. Uh, why shouldn't some currently illegal drugs be legalized? You talk about homelessness, uh, your views on the current job situation, uh, racism in this country. Uh, you also address faith, courage, and honor are in short supply in this country. What has happened? <laughs> I'd like to have an answer for that. Uh, you know, courage and honor. You know, our country is going. We're we're engaged in, uh, it, although not a declared war. We are engaged in a war. We're sending our our young, courageous people, uh, male and female, into harm's way, and uh, many are coming back uh, dead. Uh, quite a few also are coming back uh, permanently damaged, either mentally or physically or both. And and you know, we can't take away their courage and their honor. Um, what they're doing requires a tremendous amount of courage. Uh, they, they, with little doubt in my mind, perform their duties with honor. Uh, but beyond that, I don't. I just don't see the courage and honor in, in the way our society lives uh, nowadays. They're, you know, we we lie to each other. We we cheat. We steal. We. They're, they're, it takes no courage to do those things. It takes no honor to do those things. You know, sometimes. Sometimes you just have to do things the hard way, and, and, and you know, there's there's definitely honor in that, and it takes a great amount of courage. Heck, it takes a lot of courage for me to be going through this interview right now. The whole concept of 
talking about my feelings uh, is a terrifying concept to me. So <laughs> a little courage going on there. As far as faith, I think we've we've given up on faith in this country, and and uh, I'm not a Bible thumper. Um, I've been told by many uh, so-called practicing Christians I'm not a Christian. Um, I disagree with all of that, but I, I, I'm not going to run around and smack somebody over the head with a Bible because they're not living the sort of life I think they should live. Uh, but uh, without without faith and in some kind of a faith in a higher power, uh, there's no there's no getting ahead. There's no honor. There's no courage. Uh, and and sometimes to obtain the courage and to gain the honor, um, you, you without without some kind of a faith, um, there's just there's just no way. Just expecting everything to just happen because you make it happen because everything is as you think it should be that that's just not it's just not real life in my view and and uh, without faith and in uh, a higher power i really don't believe anybody can can uh, do well i just just don't think so We've been listening to Blair Stevens. He is an opinionated, outright shooting from the hip kind of guy, and he's written his book, I Made My Choice, Have You. Blair, tell us how to get your book. Well, we're published with uh, iUniverse. Uh, we're online. The book can be had uh, online through iUniverse.com, uh, also via Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble on their websites. Uh, I've had pretty good feedback on uh, the very few people that have read it and I would just love to share my opinions and uh, and uh, even go head to head with a few people that disagree with me which will be most of the population so there you go. Well thank you very much Blair for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Okay Steve thank you. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse the leading book marketing editorial services and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.